So here's, here's what's going to go on this morning. So this morning, we are going to teach why we do what we do every Sunday morning. The, the rhythm of worship on a Sunday morning. And, what we're going to, and the way we're going to do that is by not doing it the way we do it every other Sunday morning. Right? Weird, right? So what I'm going to do is we're going to talk about it, I'm going to teach about it, and then we're going to do it together. And then I'll talk about the next portion and teach about it, and then we're going to do it together. Does that make sense? On board? All right, so this is, there's, there, this is participation, right? It's informed participation, so you'll, you'll know what's coming. I'm going to pray for us, and then, and then we are going to get rolling. Father, I am feeling more aware than usual of your presence in this place this morning, and that this is all from you and all for you. We thank you for that. We receive this morning as a gift at every aspect of it, the fact that you blessed us by allowing us to wake up this morning with breath in our lungs, uh, to, to declare your greatness and your glory. I uh, thank you for the rain and the ways that you have so beautifully designed your creation and the ways that it cares for itself and, and the ways that it cleanses and feeds itself. God, it is, it is extraordinary because you are extraordinary. I thank you for this gathering, for this group of people, this family, I'd called together, drawn together by you. For those who could be here, those who are watching online, and this, is your, this is your business that we are about, and it is a great privilege and joy to be able to participate in what you are doing in your creation. I'd help us to feel that this morning and delight in it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna walk through it this way. I'm gonna have a little introduction, right? And then uh, and then like 20 minutes in, we're gonna do the call to worship. Okay. So here here's why we are doing what we're doing this morning. Because there is, we want to know why we do the things that we do. At least we should. Right. So much of our life is just mindless habit, mindless repetition. So mindless that we don't even realize that we're doing it. It's a subconscious habit, right? We've talked about it before where you can sometimes get in your car and drive to work and you don't actually remember how you got to the parking lot because it is just such a pre-conscious habit. You're not, you were thinking about something else and all of a sudden you like blink and you're in your parking spot at work going, praise Jesus, I hope I didn't hit anybody. Thank you, Jesus, for getting me here safely. It's just habit. And, and to be able to stop and take a moment and think about what is it that I'm doing each day, each week, and why am I doing that is so important because some of those habits need to be realigned. So we're going to talk through, because God is awesome, this week happens to land on, since we've been going through the Psalms over the summer and we're picking a Psalm that is within this week of the, of the uh, uh, all-church reading plan that we're doing. In this Psalm, we have, uh, this week we have Psalm 33, which is a beautiful and perfect walkthrough of what we do on a Sunday morning and why. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, they are available at the back, or if you're sitting close to the front, we have them up right here at the front as well, and you're welcome to grab one of those. So before we get there, every 
church has an order of worship. Sometimes in the church, we, we refer to some churches as liturgical and others as non-liturgical, which is a fancy word that we're using wrong. Because every church has a liturgy. To, to refer to a church as liturgical is basically to say it's a church. Because they all have a, a liturgy. The word means, what it literally means is, is the public work or the public service. But what we mean when we say it in a church is the order of worship. And every church has an order of worship, either an intentional one or an unintentional one. So maybe you grew up in a high church tradition. And what we mean by high church is not like better just there's high church and there's low church. And what we mean by that is high church is very traditional. They are not interested in adopting modern practices. Their goal is to maintain the traditions that they have been doing for centuries. Okay? So and if you came from a high church background, which would be Catholic or Anglican or Orthodox, then, then you are used to a very formalized liturgy, a very formalized order of worship that is historically connected to hundreds of years of tradition. Right? So you are, you're walking through each week these elements, some of which sometimes are in languages you don't even understand. But it's because that is the way they always did it, and so that's the way they're going to continue to do it. And what is uh, kind of extraordinary about that is when you walk through a service like that, you are walking through a service saying the same things, often the same prayers in the exact same order that your Christian brothers and sisters did a thousand years ago. That's what makes that kind of a beautiful thing. This extraordinary experience of, I am praying the prayer that 1,300 years ago, my sister in Christ was also praying at this exact point in the service. And so it connects you to centuries of the church. And there's an intentional order in how they do the service. Oftentimes, it is walking you through the story of the gospel or the, or, or the process of salvation. So the order that you do it in is teaching you something. Now, the potential downside, for many of you who have experienced that kind of tradition, you might say the potential downside is that without very intentional participation on the part of the congregant, the repetition can often become very stale and routine and there is very little engagement of the heart. Maybe you come from a mainline or low church tradition. And so that's going to be your Methodists, your Lutheran, your Baptists, your uh, Assemblies of God, your Church of Christ, your Pentecostal. That's the, we consider that low church. Not because low like it's that's low church, that's bad. But again, just because it's differentiating between they are okay with adopting more modern uh, aspects of worship and, and introducing more creativity. So there's going to be a wide range in a low church experience. Some of them, the Methodists and the Lutheran, often lean a little more towards the traditional liturgical plan, right? So they're walking through something, a very predictable Sunday morning. You know what's coming because it's the same thing that was coming 40 years ago. So they lean that way all the way to the other extreme of we walk in and we just go, what do you want to do this morning? And that's its own thing. So there's a, a wide range in low church experiences, which uh, which allows for a lot of creativity. Um, there's, a, there's a wide range of ways to participate and to connect. Uh, and you get, you get a small dose of the unexpected, which uh, some of us really appreciate. 
Now, the potential downside of that methodology is that without participation, very intentional participation from the congregation, the repetition can become very stale and routine and there is very little engagement of the heart. Weren't expecting that, were you? And oftentimes we think, well, when you do it that way, there's no emotion involved and so that's not good or, or it's too stale and it's too routine, it's too repetitive as though whatever it is that we come from is not also routine and repetitive. Right? Three or four songs, maybe five songs, a prayer, a testimony, and a sermon. That's a liturgy. And that's the same thing every single week. And we can engage in that with very little connection of the heart. You can introduce all kinds of creative elements to make the worship gathering more novel, more exciting, and, and your heart still remain very disconnected from the one that we actually gather to worship. In fact, I would argue, and I think Scripture would argue, that the more your liturgy or order of worship is focused on trying to keep our attention, the more it is focused on you and me, and the less it is focused on God, which is a problem. Because you or I should not ever be the focus of our worship gathering. You are not here to worship me, and I am not here to worship you. No offense. We gather to worship the mysterious and awesome and all-powerful triune God of the universe who has chosen to reveal himself and the way he wants us to worship him in both his written word and the living word, a.k.a. Jesus. And so that's what we want to do. We want, and we want to be able to have the freedom to draw what is beautiful from this tradition and what is beautiful and biblical from this tradition and say, how, how do we look at Scripture and understand what it says and who we are and try to do all that it has called us to in ways that connects us not only to Christ but to our brothers and sisters throughout all of history. There is a third option of people who are in here this morning. So maybe you came for high church, low church, no church. Right? Your tradition is church is nonsense. I don't know what, I don't understand what any of you guys are doing. Right? They come in here and, and, and don't think like, oh, how come we don't sing that song we sang when I was a kid? Every song is a brand new song. Also, why are we singing? What other environment do people gather together and sing songs outside of like happy birthday? Right, so that feels strange to many of you. Some of you guys with no church background whatsoever have also had your lives formed by a liturgy. The liturgy of culture. The order of worship of the culture around us. And the only difference between someone with no church background and those of us who maybe grew up in the church or have been in the church for a while is we have also been formed by culture and by our family of origin. But then we have this additional liturgy that lays on top of it that is forming us differently. So if you are here with no church background whatsoever or this is your first experience 
in a church, then, then first of all, I love that you're here. I love that the Holy Spirit of the living God grabbed hold of you and brought you to this place. That is amazing. And it is important for you to know that just like every other person in this place, the, the rhythms and habits of life are forming you into something. It is the rhythms of sin and self and culture are forming our loves and directing our lives. We try to convince ourselves that that's not the case, right? I am a unique snowflake, completely free and autonomous, and nothing dictates what I decide. I make all my own decisions. Not understanding that all of those decisions that are making, I'm arriving at because I have been formed by my family of origin and the people that I associate with and the teachers that I listen to and the culture around me that has formed and is forming me into something. All of those formative influences are the lens that we see life through. And while we are all looking maybe at the same white flower since you are wearing red lenses, it looks red to you. And, but with my green lenses, I go, no way, that's obviously a green flower. And we argue with one another, both completely convinced that we are right and the other person is crazy. One of the most significant purposes in corporate worship, in us gathering together, aside from exalting the living God of the universe, is for us to take a moment to remove those lenses. The lenses that we are wearing all throughout the week, to remove them, to remind ourselves that our perspective is always tinted, and to get a glimpse of reality without the tint. To all come together and remind one another, wait, 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 no. The flower's white. We all see and we all agree. Humans, which I believe includes nearly all of us, are habit-formed people. Things that we do over and over and over shape us, whether we realize it or not. This is why when God first gathered together the people of Israel, the first time he gathers together his people, he gives them rhythms of life and worship and remembering. That's what he gives them, habits that were meant to form them into a certain type of people, not just as an individual person, but as a gathered people, that they would be a unique peculiar people from all of the people around them. Now, unfortunately, what we see in the Old Testament is they mostly refused, and as a result, they were formed instead by the habits and rhythms of the culture around them. But then Jesus comes and demonstrates and commands these same type of rhythms as well, and then the rest of the New Testament affirms and gives us examples of these rhythms, habits that form us not only into the people of God together, but into the image of Jesus is extraordinary. The reason we do things like this, the reason we gather every week and walk through these same things, the reason we do something like communion, right? It's a physical act, a habit that we do together that brings our minds to the cross to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. Rhythms of things like being in the word and prayer and service and giving and rest and feasting and fasting all form our loves and our lives around the person and work of Jesus. These things 
are meaningful. That is why what we do and the way we do it every Sunday morning matters. So here at Faith, our liturgy walks through the gospel narrative every single Sunday. Okay, when we were gathering inside, the handout walked you through that, and it would tell you this is, this is the portion of the service that we are doing. Unfortunately, the handouts we have now, we need to save room for lyrics, and we don't want to give you a small novel every morning, and so, uh, and so we're a little, when we get back inside again and we get back to the regular bulletin, you'll see that every week. Each portion of the service on a Sunday morning walks us through an aspect of the meta-narrative of the gospel, the grand narrative of all of creation. So there's creation and then rebellion. We rebel against the creator. Redemption, which is found in Jesus Christ. Renewal, in that he is making us look more like himself and then ultimately glory. So creation, rebellion, redemption, renewal, and glory. That is the story, which, and if you ask, if your kids are in the, the, the children's ministry here, ask them, what's the big story of the gospel? You will get it with hand signals. It's awesome. So each, each step of this is, is an aspect, and what we do on a Sunday morning points to that. Okay, and we begin every Sunday morning with a call to worship. An invitation to worship, to remind us that we are not the ones who initiate worship. This was not our idea. We are being invited into something that is already in progress. God initiates it, and then he invites us into that. He doesn't need us to worship him. He had a perfect worship service going on for all of eternity before he even spoke the first Adam into existence. That's one of the benefits of being the Trinity, which we don't even have time to unpack that right now, but worship was already in progress before we hit the scene. And then he inexplicably allows us to participate in this extraordinary worship. So what we do on a Sunday morning is we start with a call to worship and then we go into adoration, which is pointing to creation and our creator exalting God. We adore and praise the Creator for who He is. We then move on to confession, which addresses the fact that we have rebelled against that perfect Creator in thought, word, and deed, and in our very nature, and in everything we do and we think, we have been corrupted by this rebellion. And so we confess. And then we go through redemption, Right, where we proclaim openly the gospel. We sing songs about the gospel. We open the word and, and are taught about the gospel. We remind one another the truth of the gospel. And then we finish in response, where we, where we talk about how we're going to walk in that renewal. We sing songs about how we will celebrate that renewal and point to the ultimate glory of Christ returning and setting up his forever kingdom. So, Psalm 33, shall we? Don't worry, that wasn't like the 10% intro and then the right, like we're well, we're well underway, don't worry. For those of you who are like, oh my goodness, he's just starting. No, it's okay. Hang, hang with me. Psalm 33. Shout, for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. 
praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. It's a musical instrument. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That is a call to worship. Right? Come on, everybody. Come on. Let's break out some instruments. Let's sing some songs. This is good stuff. Let's get together and let's sing. We are being invited into joyful worship of our God. Now, a word on music, if I may. So, our God happens to love music, right? He created it to resonate with our souls in in a way that we can't even fully understand. That's why sometimes you can listen to a song that has no words and it can bring tears to your eyes. That's weird. It's why we have soundtracks to movies because two people talking or a guy running really, really fast and jumping off a building in silence not that interesting. Maybe the jumping off the building is kind of cool, but like, like picture a movie with no soundtrack. It's just like two people talking to each other. Or a person driving a car really fast. But then you slap some music behind that thing and your heart starts pumping. Or that person says, that emotional thing, and the strings swell behind them, and your eyes well up. Because the music just does something extraordinary in there. Both J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis envisioned creation being sung into existence rather than just blandly declared. Martin Luther, in one of my all-time favorite quotes from a theologian, said this, Next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our hearts, minds, and spirits. A person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of donkeys and the grunting of hogs. (laughs) Oh, Marty. Oh gosh, it's so good. Marty, you can always count on him. Big on passion, low on tact. Always good for a zinger, Martin Luther. Get strong feelings about everything. So music is, music's a big deal. It's a big deal. It has been a part of the church since the creation of the church, since long before that. In the desert, Israel would sing songs to their God. And the music that we choose here is very carefully and prayerfully considered. We know that we have people coming from a very wide range of traditions or no tradition at all, which means that the songs that we sing every week to some people are very familiar, but to others are not at all. Regardless of how familiar that song is to you, there's a large percentage of people for whom that's not familiar at all. So we want to develop, as a family here, in a sense, our own hymnal, right? Our own selection of songs that are this family's songs, that we grow familiar with, that we love. New ones, because Scripture literally commands us to sing new songs, right? 
It just said, verse 3, sing to him a new song. So we want to incorporate new songs, but also old ones because they are just far too, there are so many good songs that are far too theologically rich and just a balm to the soul and that connect us with our brothers and sisters sometimes in centuries past and they're just too awesome for us to leave them behind. And so we need to sing those as well. We also choose a wide range of songs because songs give us words. There are moments where what comes to your head is not the scripture that we preached, but one of the songs that we sang on Sunday. And we want to be able to give words to our victories and our pain, to our joy and our sorrow, our confession and our praise, our grief and our delight. We want theological words for all of those things. And so we sing a wide range of songs. And we also want to sing uh, Uh, we want to define difficult words. We want to teach you the song. So when we have things up on the screen, oftentimes you'll notice we will define a word on there because we want you to actually know what you're singing. Because just because a song is familiar doesn't mean you actually understand what you're singing. Right? Because some of those words are a little wonky. Am I right? Like, for example, come thou fount, which is a generally very familiar song that goes across a lot of different traditions It is a beautiful song. We love this song here. And many of you who have been singing it for 30, 40, 50 years still don't have a clue what on earth an Ebenezer is. (laughs) Why am I saying, who's Ebenezer? What, is this about Scrooge? Why are we singing about Scrooge? What is this? So there's, when we have words like that, we want to help you understand what you're singing and why you're singing it, right? So why, you know, what is a fetter? Who's Ebenezer? Why, why are we asking for tuned hearts to sing with flaming tongues? That is strange to us, and we can sing them without even thinking about the words that we're singing. So just because it's familiar doesn't mean we understand what we're saying. So, uh, fun fact, a fetter is a shackle, like handcuffs. So what the author of the song is saying is we want God's goodness to bind us to him, which is sweet, right? An Ebenezer is a monument of remembrance. And so what he's saying is we want to raise an Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. I want to raise, I want to set up this monument of remembrance because I want to always remember that I made it this far with your help and your help alone. As for tuning my heart, that one's my favorite. Because if you know anything about instruments, you know that you tune the string either by adding tension or relieving tension. So the beautiful poetry of this song is, God, you, you add tension in my life where you need to or you relieve tension in my life where you need to to tune my heart to sing of your grace. It's good stuff. And not sing any old song, but teach me the sonnets of heaven sung by the Holy Spirit, who is a tongue of fire. Come on, that's awesome. That's awesome. We sing together what is true, what is worshipful. We sing what is, our goal here is not nostalgia, church. 
but to worship the living God of the universe and give you words for your prayers. And that call to worship then leads us into adoration. As he goes on, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation or the people whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. That is adoration of the creator, is it not? He just launches into it. He is incredible. His word is true and unimaginably powerful. He is trustworthy and he is just. His love is everywhere and it is steadfast. It is relentless. It does not run out and I cannot outrun it. He both made and maintains all of creation. And the only rational response to this knowledge is verse 8. Let all the earth Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. And it goes on. People's plans, laws, governments, ideas are all revealed as hollow nonsense. While God's plans, His desires, His counsel transcends every nation, every generation, and every obstacle. You guys ready for some adoration? Please join me on your feet for the call to worship. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him With the harp of ten strings, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Man, I love when we sing. It is good to hear a church lifting their voices in praise. And when we do that, when we celebrate this God and that thing stirs in us where we say, man, I think God might actually be awesome. Right? All the things that have distracted me, he's actually completely amazing. And the greatest reality in all of existence that leads us to think something about ourselves as well. Because I suddenly, in light of that, am not nearly as awesome as I thought I was a moment ago. 
The psalmist goes on in verse 13, The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all, excuse me, and observes all of their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Excuse me. So after reflecting on and celebrating the awe-inspiring wonder of God, the author reminds us that he sees and knows everything. Everything that we do and we think and we desire and that no effort whatsoever on our part, even that of kings and armies, can possibly save us. Anything other than Christ is a false hope of salvation. It cannot rescue. We spend most of our week in a battle trying not to constantly put our hope in things that cannot rescue or For being really honest, for many of us, it's not a battle at all because we've just completely surrendered to those hollow things that can't support the weight of our need or of our worship. So, in light of that, we respond to reflecting on the awe-inspiring wonder of God with confession of all the ways that I am not like him and all the ways that I have rebelled against him, both intentionally and unintentionally. We confess the things that we have put our hope in that are not him, which is insulting. We confess the deeds that we know that he is aware of. We confess the desires and the thoughts that we really hoped he was not aware of, but that he totally is. And the reminder of our corporate need for mercy, for forgiveness, And for grace has been an integral part of Christian worship since before the New Testament was finished. And we gather together and remind one another of how badly we need the Jesus that we're singing about. But I was lost. Didn't even have the ear to hear your voice. The song we just sang declares, I didn't even know what was in me. But your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, and through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. We all need Jesus. This is the one place on planet earth where we should be able to gather together and know it is okay to not be okay. Because we're the people who know we're not okay without Jesus. The only thing that's keeping this whole thing together is Jesus. It's true for me and true for you. So this is not the place where we come and we pretend like we have it all figured out. That nonsense is for the world, not for the people of God. Not for the people who know we are broken and we need a Savior. The people who sing songs about, isn't it how marvelous that we have a Savior who loves us so? And so we come together and we confess together, corporately together, as a beautiful act of, and a humble act of unity 
and to remind one another, oh yeah, you, you need Jesus just as badly as I do. I need Jesus just as badly as you do. So for us here in Sunday morning, sometimes that's a corporate prayer that we pray together. Sometimes it's a scripture that we read. Sometimes it's a song that we sing. This morning, we're going to do both a corporate prayer and then we're going to sing the same prayer. So if you would be so kind to join me on your feet as we sing and confess. In front of you, you have the prayer which we will read out loud together. Merciful God, we confess we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, transform what we are, and direct what we will be, so that we will delight in your ways to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It is good to sing with the people of God. It is good to be able to declare with one another these truths, these realities. It is good to be able to sing a song asking God to please have mercy on us, knowing He has. And have a seat for this last few minutes. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in what? His steadfast love. Yes. That's so good. Those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. His steadfast love. In Romans 5 it says, but God demonstrates this love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians, after a lengthy and alarming description of the total disaster that you and I are on our own, Paul launches into, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead in our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, he comes to us and demonstrates this extraordinary love by sending Jesus Christ to live the life that you and I should have lived but cannot and die the death that you and I deserve to die and then resurrect from the dead to conquer Satan's sin and death and prove that everything that he said and did was exactly what he said and did. So that, why? Just so that God could show, this is how much I love you. This is how extraordinary my love is. And I want to put on display my love for the rest of eternity. This gospel, this grand story of existence, of creation, God making us all, rebellion, our rebellion against that, the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus, the renewal that he is working in and through Jesus and in and through us, his church, and the glory that we have to look forward to is what we rehearse every single Sunday morning to drive it into our minds and our souls. So that that becomes the subconscious habit that we live with throughout the rest of the week. It, this grand narrative climaxes in this moment that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because through Jesus we are redeemed, we are set free from our sl- slavery to sin and self. We are justified, which means we are declared righteous, declared innocent before God. Jesus gives us his, he doesn't just declare us innocent, Jesus gives us his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, which is mind-boggling. That's a whole other sermon, that's a sermon series. And he doesn't leave it there. Grace upon grace upon grace, as if that wasn't already immeasurably more, he then adopts us into his family as his daughters and sons. We are no longer orphans, spiritual or otherwise. We are full-blooded members of God's extraordinary family. If you are here this morning and you have never realized how dearly and deeply loved you are by the triune God of the universe, to what extent Jesus went to to demonstrate that love for you and to make it accessible to you, then today is the day to trust that and begin to live each day in delight and in light of that. There is no one that is too broken. There is no one that is too sinful, no one that is too fallen for our Jesus. Not even you. Not even me. Amen. 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 Man, I need this, Jesus. This gathering, church, is only one small piece. The privilege that we have to gather together and delight in this Jesus, who he is and who we get to be because of him. But it's just a tiny portion of our life, of our week, right? We gather in this place to remember, but then we scatter. And the vast majority of our lives is outside of these walls. And our lives outside of these walls are meant to be every bit as much worship as our moments within them. The daily rhythm of our lives is meant to be one of worship. 
We gather as the family of God to love one another, encourage one another, remind one another, but then we scatter as God's family on his mission throughout the week. Our remembering and our worshiping on Sunday leads to a response every other day of the week. And here his response is, our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Our soul waits. We rely on him in everything throughout the week. Our heart is glad in him. We delight in him. We trust in him. We hope in him. And that, when we see through that lens, that affects how we view reality and everything and everyone around us. It directs our desires and our choices toward his kingdom, his glory, and ends in our unimaginable joy. That is why we gather. That is why we pray. That is why we read his word together. That is why we confess. It is why we sing, church. So let's end with a song of response and a benediction, which is a prayer of sending.